Hey, Square. I am not a square. I think we should invite Greg this weekend. What's this weekend? These people are hippies, rebels against old-fashioned authority. I think these kids need help. What they need is a bath. You're passing judgment on people you know nothing about. Maybe that's why your church is so empty. When God walks in here, brings me a hippie. I'll ask him what it's all about, because I do not understand. His house has a very good vibe. an entire generation searching. Slow down, man, slow down. Just in all the wrong places. If you want to reach my people, you need to speak to them in a language they understand. If I bring them in, I'm going to lose my job. We can only walk through doors open to us. And your church, that's a door that's shut. Probably noticed we have some guests here today. I'd like you to meet my new friends. Welcome. They don't belong here. Half of them aren't even wearing shoes. They're staining the new shag carpet. They need our help. If you feel like you're misunderstood and judged, you will find forgiveness and freedom right here. That was awesome. Now that door is open any time of day. And if there are some who don't like that, well then that door works both ways. All right, Pastor, let's begin. I was almost done with this, but then you did what nobody else would even dare. This thing that we found, I feel like I belong. You're gonna need a bigger church. Our country is a dark and divided place, but now there's hope and it's spreading. This is your home, and I want you to tell all your friends about it. Well, if you recall, a uh, series that we did this last fall had to do with revival. Uh, why revival tarries? And I said in that series that uh, there was a revival movement that a lot of times we don't think of as being a revival movement, and that was the people, the Jesus people movement of the early 70s. And it began right here in Southern California. And I told you during the Why Revival uh, Terry series that I would remind us when this movie was coming out that they've done on uh, the Jesus Revolution. And so I encourage you to gather some friends, uh, both maybe some church friends, unchurched friends, and go to uh, see Jesus Revolution, which begins uh, next weekend. Uh, I actually looked, I think maybe in Regal Theater here in the Promenade Mall, that there is a, maybe even a showing uh, earlier uh, than next weekend. But go do that because you and I need to believe that God can create a movement of his Holy Spirit in our nation and our people again. We said there were different reasons why revival tarries. One is because we don't want more. But another is we don't believe that God could move. It was interesting what happened with the Jesus movement. It started to spark other kinds of uh, Holy Spirit happenings around the nation. One of those um, that I was familiar with that I'd heard about later had to do with 
a Christian university in Kentucky by the name of Asbury University. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Asbury before or not. Pastor Trey and his wife Helen have because they did graduate degrees at Asbury. But Asbury had the Asbury Revival. And uh, I always heard about that. In fact, the student ministry that I was a part of, we went to Ixus, which was a big, um, like, um, big outdoor kind of bash all week long, what do they call those things that, uh, you know, you're hanging out and singing and hearing speakers and being encouraged and loving people. Um, it was a festival kind of thing. And uh, we would go down to Asbury on a regular basis to take our youth ministry to Ixus. But this week, uh, my social media started to pop up and light up, and I started to get some texts from people and their uh, excitement was in the fact that something was happening at this university in Asbury again this week. And it's uh, something I, I'm not quite sure fully what is going on, but I read the uh, significance of it. But Asbury has their auditorium, which is Hughes Auditorium, and the students meet there for chapel services during the week. The chapel service that they had on Wednesday was just a common, ordinary chapel service, but they have somehow experienced a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Asbury this week, and that chapel service has not ended 24-7 as of this morning. And uh, the people contacting me some of them actually uh, had been a part of Asbury in that time. And uh, there's people that are pouring into this university from other places, other universities, even other states. And it just struck me this week, especially, and I knew I was going to throw up this trailer for the Jesus Revolution. And I thought to myself, you know, 1970 was the Asbury Revival, and here God revisits again in 2023. Different, unique, you're not trying to replicate anything, but for whatever reason, those students were hungry to have more of God, and whatever happened in that chapel service on Wednesday, some of them stayed, and others stayed. And I thought to myself, well, when we come in here this morning, and we worship the Lord, and we Look at his scripture. Are, are we believing that God could do something here? Now, don't get worried. I'm not going to make you stay here <laughs> the whole week. But what if God poured out his spirit upon us as a people here at the awakening? Would we be receptive to it? Would we own it? Or would we just want to get on with our day and our week? Here on Super Bowl Sunday, right? This is a big Sunday, so there's plans. Pre-game starts at 1 o'clock, so you need to go get your lunch, pick up your, your game snacks, and get ready to watch the game at 3, right? But God's kingdom operates in a different realm. And I'm sure that those students at Asbury this week probably didn't focus too much on the Super Bowl coming. It's interesting also because of the series that we're in concerning the message that Jesus brought on what's called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was a moment when Jesus 
gathered his people together that had begun to follow him in just the early days of his ministry, and he began to articulate to them what the good life was. And as we've begun to look at this Sermon on the Mount and what the good life really is, we need to endear ourselves to listen to the words of Jesus because the good life is not what's being pitched to you or I on a regular basis. In fact, I've been watching commercials. You can watch your Super Bowl commercials today and sort of look it through the lens saying, oh, are they pitching what the good life really is if you have that car or you're able to have this kind of success, that kind of thing. Jesus stood up amongst the crowd on what is the hillside of the Sea of Galilee that's depicted here, and he began to unpack for them what the kingdom of God was and what this good life is. And today, as we step deeper into this message, I want you to open your ears, not to me, I want you to open your ears to the words of Jesus Christ, because some of us need to alter the trajectory of where we're, our life is headed this morning. Whether you're young or you're old, we easily get tainted by the perspectives and the pressure and the seduction, if I can use that word, of the things of this world. And that's because the adversary, Satan, is behind the seductions of the world, and he wants to distract you and I from the riches and the goodness of God and his kingdom. So whatever maybe is on your radar as what's the next thing to bring you the good life, maybe there might be a check in your spirit if the Holy Spirit could speak to you today. Because what Jesus talks about with this good life has to do with his kingdom. And we um, cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount unless we understand how he stepped into it on that hillside that day. It was in verse 17 of chapter 4 of Matthew that it's recorded that from that time on, and some of the changes that happened to him coming out and what and John the Baptist was beheaded and other things, that he began to preach. And he had done demonstrations of some miracles, but he began to preach. And what he preached to the people, this is not me, this is Jesus. Jesus preached, repent, which isn't us all getting down in sackcloth and ashes. And, and it, it means change your direction, your, tra your trajectory. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the kingdom of heaven, referring to the kingly reign of Jesus Christ, it had come near because he's now stepped into this ministry. Verse 23, then, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's not bad news, but it's good news. And healing every disease and sickness among the people. He combined his healing, his demonstration of the ministry, with his preaching, the proclamation. We looked at last week, the whole idea of salt and light, were to be salt and light, and salt and light has to do with the visual presence of being the presence of God in people's lives, and then verbal, to be able to articulate the good news, and then the invitational aspect, that to invite people into the kingdom and to follow Jesus. But... He went throughout all of Galilee area, and this is Galilee, right? That's the Sea of Galilee that you're looking at. Teaching in their synagogues, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
news about him began to spread all over Syria. Now, Syria is north the Sea of Galilee. In fact, we're very mindful of Syria and Turkey in these weeks. As I, so now over 25,000 people have perished because of the earthquake, the major earthquake that had happened over in that part of the world. But it was just north of Galilee that Syria was, and people brought to him all who were ill from various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. And I'm sure in that kind of environment, he was attracting more and more people. It's like, I need this. I need to be healed. I have physical issues. And it says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So this wasn't some little local revival that was happening. It started to spread. It's like what I read this week about uh, the Asbury Revival that was happening in their Hughes Auditorium and on campus. People coming from as far away as Michigan and South Carolina to see what was happening. You see, what, what was happening here with Jesus was a revival. Remember, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets law, there had been no writings in this scripture that we know of for 400 years. Oh, I'm sure there were some religious elite people and some other people trying to be the would-be messiahs and those kinds of things for sure. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, 400 years of silence, he begins proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. People started seeing his power and the miracles. People coming from all these uh, spread out countries in these regions gathered here, packed in on a hillside to hear him preach the Sermon on the Mount. This was a revival. Revival means quickening, wakening up. That's right. And Jesus is still interested in revivals today. If we will but position ourselves before him for his good and faithful and holy work. Anything ever happened to you in life? You were just so excited about it and you had to tell someone and bring them along the next time you did it. It's like, you got to come with me. Well, that's what was happening. You got to come see Jesus. You got to see what Jesus is doing. This is the real stuff. This is uh, this is radical teaching that he was bringing. This is true righteousness. This is the true good life. And people flocked to him, and his work began to spread mightily in that day. And what you and I have here in our scriptures, <laughs> if you want to turn to Matthew five, if you got your scriptures in hand, or maybe if you uh, have an electronic device. By the way, students, if there's any new students here that haven't been on Wednesday night yet, I'll see you at 6.30 Wednesday night. I had, there were seven or eight new students this last week. One brought in a little broken Bible, and he said, uh, I'm here to get that new Bible. <laughs> a brand new family, they'd just come two weeks ago and popped in. And I said, here's your new Bible. They're nice Bibles, but in the Bible, we find God's Word, and God's Word brings life to us, 
We need to look into scriptures. You need to bring your Bible. Students, if you got that really nice Bible, you need to bring it on Sundays as well as Wednesday. But this was the Sermon on the Mount that he stood up and he began to preach and impart to them life. He went through the blesseds and we've talked about the Beatitudes because he was describing who was able to have the kingdom life. Not the elites, not those who were all perfect. It was the spiritual zeros that could have the kingdom of God. And so he read through them, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. He unpacks the kingdom of God in this new day, this true Jesus revelation. The kingdom is available to you. And so he focused on the who of the kingdom. What we come to today, he begins to open up the what or the how of the kingdom. And normally, the Sermon on the Mount is taken by Christians even as an awful heavy proclamation of rules and things to live up to, but that's not what he was doing. That's not what he was doing. But it was radical in what they were hearing. And so in verse 17, it says this. Verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what's he talking about? Well, our Bibles, this part here is called the Old Testament. It's pretty thick. This part here, we call the New Testament, right? In the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? And so the Torah was known to the Jewish people as the law. Moses gave the law, God worked through him. And then you step into historical books and the prophets. And so this whole idea of what the prophets are, he's really summing up the historical books and the prophets. There's a third genre of literature in the Old Testament, which is sort of miscellaneous. It has to do with wisdom, uh, the Proverbs, the Psalms, Ecclesiastics, that kind of thing. And so when Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, he's saying, do not think that I stand up here for this Jesus revolution to say, you need to do away with the Old Testament. Now, why did he ask that question, do not think? Well, any good communicator guesses or reads the minds and the eyes of his audience. And so they're all hitting one another, sitting around here on this. Why am I this radical teaching? He's saying, he's saying that the kingdom of God is available to us, just common folks. The zeros, we're not nearly like all the, the really uh, spiritually elite kind of people. He says, yeah, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. You've let the kingdom come in your life. By rain come in your life. And they're like, okay, that we're blessed. What, uh, what, what? What are you talking about? What, are you doing away with all the law and the prophets? Jesus says, no, I'm not. 
I'm not come to abolish the law and the prophets, all that's in the Jewish, the Hebrew scriptures. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So no one in this room today should ever have this debate as to, is the Old Testament relevant and important to us? It is. Is it sometimes harder? Yes. But it's because the Old Testament is the story of God redeeming his people, redeeming human beings who fell in the garden and sin, and how he's bringing redemption about in this world. And the Old Testament, it's helpful to have that understanding to really be enlightened about what Jesus began to do and how the New Testament went forward. Our daughter Grace attends Simpson University, which is one of the Alliance schools up in Redding, California. And uh, last semester, she had introduction to New Testament. And this semester, she has introduction to the Old Testament. And part of her is like, well, I need to, maybe I should have, why didn't I do the Old Testament first, Dad? And then I should have done the New Testament. Well, it really doesn't matter either way. It's just great that she has a a semester's worth of study in, in both of them. But the New Testament is enlightened and builds upon the Old Testament. So as she would be studying the Old Testament, there's some ahas because Jesus as the Messiah was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And fulfillment doesn't mean radically different. There was a bishop in the second century by the name of Marcion. And Marcion was really bothered by the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, and he began to teach, a Christian bishop, right? He began to teach that the Old Testament God was different than the New Testament God. You ever hear that? God in the Old Testament, rules, rituals, judgment, oh my gosh, there's some... There's some crazy, ugly stuff in that Old Testament. But Jesus, Jesus, nice grace, love, forgiveness, that kind of thing. And it's like, sometimes you think, well, how does the God of the New Testament equate to God of the Old Testament? Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was actually a tribal God of the Jewish people. And so he began to cut down everything that was of that tribal God, and, and he began to proclaim that he was about judgment, and you don't need to worry about the God of the Old Testament. That's not understanding the God that is. The God that is. Because the God of the New Testament, if you use that terminology, is the same God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And fulfillment means like, um, I don't know, like filling up a jar. If I had a big jar of water up here, I had salt last week. Maybe I should have brought a jar up for a little visual here to keep you awake today. But it's like it, fulfillment, you're, you're, you're filling it up and then it's overflowing, Right? So there was partial filling of the Old Testament, and explain, but then in the New Testament, Jesus, it kept getting filled, and, and it overflows. And so these people are questioning, Jesus, this is radical stuff, dude. Is, are, you, are you saying that the law? No, I'm saying I'm the fulfillment of it. And so we have the context for understanding the continuity of all of Scripture found in Jesus Christ. Before there were airplanes, if you were in England and you wanted to take a trip to Colorado to see the Rocky Mountains, how would you do it? Well, the first part of your trip, you would get on a boat 
a ship and you would cross the Atlantic Ocean, right? But what would you do to get to the Rocky Mountains? Would you stay trying to get there in a boat? No, would not be a good idea. You'd get in some type of vehicle that had round wheels to it, and you would make a journey, or you could even walk if you wanted to. The second part does not negate the first part. The Old Testament was a journey of fulfilling God's vision and plan for the world, but Jesus then came, and he was the fulfillment. He was the second journey, all right? And he was trying to teach these Hebrew people who their whole life had tried to follow the law and the prophets that now in this moment, he was the fulfillment of all this. And here we stand now 2,000 years after Jesus Christ. Is, is there a further trip from Jesus to the West Coast? You know, there is. Because we stand between the times. And when Jesus came the first time, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He's saying, my presence is here. It's found in me. Rule and reign. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. He died on a cross for our sins. He was raised from the grave, breaking the power of sin, breaking the power of death, providing a means for us to have forgiveness of our sins and be changed if we invite him into our life. But then he ascended to the heavens and everybody's gawking, right? Going, oh my gosh, where'd he go? And the angel said, this same Jesus who ascended to you will come back in like manner. We stand between the times because there's another leg to the fulfillment of this whole messianic journey. And that's when Jesus Christ comes again and establishes physical reign in a new heaven and a new earth. I don't know about you. There's a lot of storylines you can be a part of. You can be a part of the Super Bowl storyline today and get jazzed and excited about that. But I get jazzed and excited that I'm a part of the kingdom storyline and I know my place in it and I am seeking the power and the presence and the fulfilling, the fulfilling strength of the Lord Jesus to live in this. And I want to call as many people into it. Including students. There's nothing better. Where's your sight set for the good life? Where's your sight set for the good life? Jesus said, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, sometimes referred to in the King James as jot and a tittle, you can say not, not even the stroke across the top of a T or a dot on, on the top of an I. None of that will by any means disappear until the law, until everything is accomplished in what God's doing in this plan. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands of Scripture and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Hold dear to it. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, this picture of the fulfillment of all things will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And some kid on the back row of this mountainside probably raised his hand, does that mean me? And Jesus pointed him out and says, yeah, that means you. You will be called great in the kingdom of heaven as you're a part of all that's being fulfilled here now in this Jesus revolution that stands before you. And then comes verse 20 of chapter 5. 
This is a critical verse for understanding all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, For I tell you, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, forget that. I, I don't think it can happen. I, uh, I've been around church stuff. I've been around religious people, all those kinds of things. I know what my mom and dad say. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you saying that my righteousness, doing right, well, I use the word goodness in there because righteousness and goodness are interrelated. Are you saying to me that unless it passes, surpasses these Pharisees, these are the religious, studious people and the teachers of the law, that I can't enter the kingdom of heaven? I'm done. I'm done. You think some of them got up and walked off the hillside then? Maybe. I don't think so. I think they leaned in and go, hey, say what? What, what are you saying? And what Jesus was doing, it was, he was radically redefining their understanding of, of what the kingdom was about, the fulfillment of the kingdom, who could be in the kingdom, and how to enter into the kingdom. He was doing this radical change in their thinking. We look at this verse... And we start to get beat up by it. In fact, what he starts to talk about after this verse can be like major club on our head. I don't measure up. I don't measure up. But he was articulating the change of course in this revolution. They looked at the righteousness of the Pharisees and said, I can't get beyond that. I mean... Yeah, some of us do pretty good. But you got to think in terms of this. Like today, um, some of you played football or whatever. I, I tried to play quarterback up to my freshman year, and, and then I decided I just need to run cross country and be in shape for basketball when I was in high school. And so uh, football fell off the wayside for me pretty quickly uh, in high school. But uh, if I thought I could take those quarterback skills and go into that Super Bowl arena today, I would be sorely amiss, wrong. Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts are phenomenal quarterbacks, right? Phenomenal quarterbacks. These guys can not only throw pinstripe balls and throw deep balls, they can improvise and get themselves out of situations and they're fast and they can run, right? You're going to watch two incredible quarterbacks with the Chiefs and the Eagles today for the Super Bowl. And as you watch them, you have to think in terms of what these people were thinking maybe in that when Jesus said to them, unless your football abilities exceed Patrick Holmes and Jalen Hurts, you can never pick up a football even. Don't do it. They saw the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as untouchable in their religious obedience. But this is what you need to understand Jesus was doing in that moment. The righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law 
was a righteousness of action. Are you doing the right things? Over 600 laws and commands in, in the scriptures and, and even in their other writings is like they were trying to do every one of them. And they were measuring everybody up. Are you making the grade? Are you good? Are you not? Oh, you need to be doing this. You can't be. I mean, there were crazy things like keeping the Sabbath. One of the silliest things I thought of as keeping the Sabbath was they would come up with these laws like you weren't supposed to. If to keep the Sabbath, could you travel on the Sabbath? Was that work? Well, you can't travel. You can't travel? Uh, What if you're on a boat going across the Mediterranean Sea? Oh, okay. So you can travel on the Sabbath if you're in a boat. Well, they didn't really say in a boat. What they said was you could travel on the Sabbath if you were on water. So you know how people got around that? They placed bags of water on their camels, and then they rode on their camels so they could say they were keeping the law of the Sabbath because they were traveling on water. (laughs) That's the pettiness of what would happen with the law. And they were measuring everybody up and down according to the law. It had to do about your actions. Now, I got a question to you. I don't know what your background is spiritually, what you grew up in or didn't grow up in. Maybe you didn't grow up around church or anything religious. Maybe you just had perceptions of people religious. But what is your perception of a really good, righteous person? Is it measured by their actions, always according to all jot and tittle of the law? Jesus wasn't knocking actions, Actions are good, righteous, good actions are important for us as followers of Jesus. But he said the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was a righteousness of action. Are you doing the right things? And then he says the righteousness of the kingdom, however, moves not to actions, but to the source of the actions, which is the life and the empowerment of Jesus the King. So when he's standing before them teaching about him being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and that unless your righteousness exceeds that of uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He's coming at the source of the accent because what had begun to transpire in that day was the living relationship that we were to have with the God that created us going back to God making Adam and Eve where God walked in the garden with them. What's happening to us today is we've fallen into, and it's historical back, you can go all the way back 2,000 years and before that right into the law and the prophets, is we've fallen into religion. And that's not what Jesus came to give, to burden you down with a bunch of religion. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about entering into an interactive relationship in the kingdom of God, moving away from religion, rituals, and rules, and discovering the true righteousness, the true goodness in him under his reign. That, my friends, is good news. So those who are seeking God in Hughes Auditorium this week, they're not seeking God by bringing in a bunch of righteous activities. 
They're seeking God in humility to have his rule and reign in their life. And if you've ever been a part of the movements of God, at the forefront is what Jesus said in verse 14 of chapter 4, repent. There's a repentance and a turning from our own trajectory in our own way. And it's not just the Christian faith that falls into legalism. Every other kind of religion that's out there has to do with works righteousness. You've got to measure up legalism. You've got to do these things. You've got to do so many things to get to God. Well, friends, Jesus said our righteousness of ourselves and our human nature is as filthy rags. There's nothing that can come close to measuring to his beauty and his righteousness. We need his righteousness, his life, living within us. It's not about rules, rituals, routines, and religions. It's about the reign, the reign of Jesus. And the question comes to you and I if we want the good life today. Have you really laid down your life and your own righteousness? And have you let his reign come within? Jesus, you take the throne. What happens here then is he begins to teach them about this new way of looking about how the kingdom plays its way out in everyday life. He begins to say a lot of, uh, you have heard it said. And in fact, all the next sections, if you look through it in uh, Matthew, you've heard it said this, you've heard it said that. And he, he moves through these sections. And what he's saying, you have heard, you've heard in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, you have heard this. But then he teaches them a different kind of way with this new perspective of his kingdom, his, the source of the actions coming within. So he says in Matthew 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be a subject to judgment. Um, you could probably see that most all problems in life sort of come in a couple buckets. One of those is anger, and probably the other is lust, and he addresses both of them off the bat here. Uh, this is Valentine's week, right? And some of you have great marriages. Some of you have some pretty tough marriages in this room, right? How much of it comes down to issues of anger and lust and other kinds of self-centered things? And so he begins to address them, and he takes sort of what I think is sort of an easy one, right? Uh, you've heard that it was said people long ago, you shall not murder. <laughs> I don't murder, man. I'm good. I'm good. How many of you good on that one? All right, you stayed clear from following that one? Yeah, I've stayed clear from following. I've not done the murder thing. Uh, so I'm feeling pretty good about that one. And then all of a sudden he turns it and he says, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, of course. But he says, but I tell you, this is King Jesus now, right? We're wanting him to reign in our life. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Did he just equate murder and anger? Well, sort of. But he's not focused on the actions here. This is what you've got to understand. No matter how bad you've been and what you've done and fallen and you don't think that anybody could forgive you, don't focus on the action here, okay? Actions come from sin, bad choices, other kinds of things. He's, he's not saying you... Uh, he's saying, all right, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the the. Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then you can't enter the kingdom of God because they're focused on what? 
actions. I did all right pretty good with the murder one, right? But then now Jesus is saying, I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Well, I'll raise my hand. I'll be honest and real. You been there? Angry with a brother or sister? Not just biological. Maybe it's a sister, brother in Christ. <sighs> he unpacks a little bit more. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, you got to understand, uh, there's this movement from, and this is true in life, is it not? There's this movement from um, anger to contempt for a person, and then to the contempt, there's this vindictive, uh, vindictive kind of spirit towards them, and you got to understand these two, we're not for sure what the word raka is, but they think it might come from the idea of um, pulling up a loogie, right, and you go, raka, if you get really mad at somebody this week, go, raka, And the fool aspect isn't like we think in terms of foolishness or that silliness. No, a fool was somebody who was um, premeditating for uh, a person's demise. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, be, uh, will be the, uh, in danger of the fire of hell. And then he switches it and he, he gives them sort of an action. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Now, it was like a no-no because, see, they were focused on your actions and the rituals and the routine. Nobody would come and present at the altar uh, their sacrifice and think at that moment that they needed to get up and leave. That would be really bad. That's not a good action. But Jesus is saying it's not about the action, it's about the heart. And when you have his kingship in your life and you're leading your life according to how he wants you to lead, his spirit speaks to you and makes you sensitive and aware of sin in your life. And if you're at the altar and you're praying and you remember that you are in um, disagreement with someone and God convicts you that you need to go, then get up, leave, your, leave, leave the altar and the sacrifice there and you go and try to be reconciled to that person. And it might be a tough love thing. It might be that you have to own your slice of the pie like we've talked about and things. But Jesus is not focused on these real rigid kind of actions. He's looking at the heart. He's not focused on the actions. He's focused on the source of the actions. And if his life is living, being lived through you, he's going to give you some of that sensitivity. And so he says, first go. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Oh, but that's an action. But it's an action based off of focus on the source of the action. And Jesus gives you his rules and his commandments. He prompts you, do this or do that. I was sharing with someone at men's breakfast yesterday. I had a good group. We had over 40 guys there. Thanks for coming. We'll do it again second Wednesday, right, bro? We're good to go. And so this person said, I went and tried to apologize to my sister because they were out of relationship with them. And I said, how did that go? It didn't go very well. But the win wasn't in the reconciling. The win was in the obedience of the king that said, you leave and you go. 
and you ask for forgiveness of a wrong that's happened in your family. And Jesus tried to change their focus away from all the actions to the source of the action because when you focus on the source, the kingdom of Jesus living within you, he gives you the promptings of how you're to operate. So contrary to what a lot of people teach with the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a bunch of legalism. It's this is how the kingdom of God should operate. Don't you agree that that would be a wise thing to do is if you're out of relationship with someone, that would be like a Jesus thing, right? Try to go, not to earn something with God, but because God's in your life. He says, settle matters quickly in verse 25 with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on your way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You know, some people have interpreted this as saying you should never sue people. He didn't say that. He just said when you're on your way to court, maybe there's a wrong. Why, why don't you consider trying to make bends and figure this out? Because once you get in the court system, you know what happens in the court system, all kinds of crazy stuff. And you may end up being in prison or the last penny. Uh, a kingdom person who has Jesus in their life, the source of your actions need to overflow and you take initiative. To try to reconcile with a broken relationship, a brother or sister. That if there's somebody that you're in a business dealing with and it's gone bad and there's disagreements, try to work out some reconciliation moments there. Be on your way to court. So he has a discussion about the actions, but it's not that the actions are gaining you favor with God. That's religion, religion, ritual, and, and, and um, rules. He is talking about the actions that flow from the source. So we move away from a focus on the actions and we focus on the source of the actions, which is his lordship and his kingship. So I just want to sum up some of these thoughts. And, um, you know, next week we'll start popping through some of these. We, we take this first one of murder here, right, and, and killing. And he says, hey, where's the focus? The kingdom of heaven moves us not to our actions, but rather it moves us to the source of our actions and goodness. In Jesus Christ, we have true righteousness, true goodness, true hope and power for the good life. And that's why one of my favorite verses is Colossians 1.27. To them, God has chosen to make known them among the Gentiles, amongst all people, the glorious riches of this mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is is that God sent Jesus for all people, but it's the mystery of the fulfillment of the Old Testament as well. And this is the verse that phrase, Christ in you is the hope of glory, the source of the actions. Jesus Christ came as a fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, and he offers himself as the new life in the kingdom of God here and now. It's for all of you. Even if you walked in today thinking you were a spiritual zero and you can never measure up. We're not calling you out to measure up to the righteousness of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. We're calling you into an interactive relationship with the king.
with his righteousness. So my question is, have you received, received a good life in Jesus Christ? Or are you striving after religious actions to gain favor? To gain favor with God. Because it happens all the time. Trying to gain favor. Tim Keller says this. Listen carefully. There is then a great gulf between the understanding that God accepts us because of our efforts and the understanding that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Religion operates on the principle of, quote, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. But the operating principle of the gospel is, quote, I'm accepted by God through what Jesus Christ has done. Therefore, I obey. Two people living in their lives on the basis of these two different principles may sit next to each other in a church pew. They both pray, give money generously, and are loyal and faithful to their family and church, trying to live decent lives. However, they do not. They do so out of radically different motivations, in two radically different spiritual identities. And the result is two radically different kinds of lives. The primary difference is that of motivation. In religion, we try to obey the divine standards out of fear. We believe if we don't obey, we're going to lose, to lose God's blessings in this world and the next. In the gospel, the motivation is one of gratitude. For the blessings we have are already received because of Christ. While the moralist is forced into obedience, motivated by the fear of rejection, a Christian, a true Christian, rushes into obedience, motivated by a desire to please and resemble the one who gave his life for us. When Jesus talks about entering the kingdom of God, he's not talking about after you die. He's talking about the here and now. Are you living in this kingdom? And have you entered into that kingdom by surrendering your life to him? It is the life of the king living within you that enables life in the kingdom to be lived in relationship with God, in relationship with others, in relationship with yourself, in relation to the creation and the world around you. All of those are broken. But in Christ, there is freedom and power for the good life. And so, these people praying at the altar this week at Hughes Hall and Asbury University, they're not seeking, oh God, make me better. They're seeking to be led by King Jesus. In repentance and prayer, they're seeking his goodness in their life, not as a means to righteousness, but as a result of their love for him. I want to encourage us not to ever hold back in bowing our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and letting his work be completed in us. These students, I don't know how long they're going to stay in their chapel service. Some were bringing in mattresses and food was being offered in the basement and people might 
slip away for a while and come back. But that was a holy place of sanctuary for God to do his work. I'm going to ask Angela and come up. We're going to sing a song that ties the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's an old song. Some of you thought it was a new song when we sang it a few weeks ago. El Shaddai. I think it was Amy Grant that made that popular. That was back in the 70s, right? El means God. Shaddai, they're not fully sure of, but it seems to mean Almighty. So it's one of the names of God. El Shaddai, we want to proclaim how great and almighty God is. And Jesus came, as it says in the last verse, as a fulfillment of God's greatness and his goodness. Ushers, you can take your places to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. And uh, if there's any questions you might have or prayer responses or spiritual commitments, you can mark those on the back of your card and they'll receive your connect cards as well as the offering. But as we sing this closing song, there may be some of you that need to do what they uh, have been doing at Asbury this week. I have been encouraging you to come to the Plan A conference. Some of that has to do with equipping and inspiration. But this Plan A conference is led by uh, a group of itinerant speakers that spend time on college campuses. The main guy, Dwight Robertson, was my youth pastor. I was telling these young people down here, when I grew up, we had a whole pack of youth that we set up front. And Dwight led us have passion for his kingdom and when I was done with seminary I came back and I took over the college career ministry that he was leading at that time at a large Wesleyan church in Marion which is a couple hours north of Asbury and Dwight started a ministry called Kingdom Building Ministry and rebranded it to Ford's but the whole aspect is for us to be able to build the kingdom of God and be kingdom laborers and I tell you what this is one of the main reasons I want you to come for March 17 and 18 is because I think Jesus is going to meet us that week. Now, I don't want you to miss out. Take the QR code, talk to Zach, sign up, be here, because we're going to focus on the kingdom of God and taking the kingdom of God to the least of those around us. There's going to be a, a time of prayer and anointing at Plan A Conference for the Holy Spirit to empower you to be a kingdom labor friends this is the world we need to be operating in have fun with the Super Bowl today I will be but we live in the kingdom of God and we need to be serious about the kingdom the king is coming but he's already come and he wants to reign in your heart and life so as we close with this song and the ushers come if you need to come and pray and lay something down and repent of your own self-righteousness and some of your good works that are trying to earn favor with God and just in humility offer your life to him, then you do so. Or you can pray right in your seats. But let's close with this song and after this song we will pray together. Listen to the Holy Spirit's work in your heart and life.